PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practice since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. Welcome to the PTJ podcast, Physical Therapist Practice in the ICU, Growing Evidence, Growing Demand. Increasingly, evidence shows that PT-led rehabilitation intervention in the ICU is safe and feasible and results in fewer days of medical ventilation, shorter ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and improved patient outcomes. But the day-to-day implications of this growing body of evidence were unclear until the recent publication of two papers in PTJ. Dr. Patricia Otaki interviews authors Dr. Dan Malone and Dr. Ellen Rubel-Hakim about the current state of PT practice in the ICU. And now, our moderator. Hi, my name is Patricia Otaki, and I'm an editorial board member of the Physical Therapy Journal. The July and October 2015 issues of Physical Therapy contain papers examining physical therapist practice in the intensive care unit. The paper that appeared in July is titled, Physical Therapist Treatment of Patients in the Neurological Intensive Care Unit, Description of Practice, and was authored by Drs. Satil, Nordenkraft, Malone, Luby, Shankman, and Moss. This month, the paper titled Physical Therapist Practice in the Intensive Care Unit Results from a National Survey was published. The authors for that paper are Drs. Malone, Ridgway, Nordenkraft, Moss, Shankman, and Moss. These papers examine a very important issue, namely current physical therapist practice in the ICU. Over the past decade, evidence has continued to increase that demonstrates that physical therapist-led rehabilitation interventions for patients in the ICU is safe and feasible, results in fewer days of mechanical ventilation, shorter ICU and hospital lengths of stay, and importantly, improve patient outcomes, both physical and psychological. However, the current state of the translation of this evidence of the benefits of ICU rehabilitation that have been identified in the literature into everyday clinical practice in the United States was unclear until these two investigations were undertaken. During this podcast, we will be discussing the current state of ICU physical therapist practice, how the culture of immobility in the ICU is changing, and the growing demand for physical therapists in this practice setting. We're really excited today to have two physical therapists with expertise in ICU physical therapist practice with us today, Dr. Dan Malone and Dr. Ellen Rubel-Hakim. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Dan Malone, who is first author on one of the papers we will be discussing and co-author on the other. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Patricia. It's nice to be here. Dr. Daniel Malone is an assistant professor in the physical therapy program at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He is an educator, clinical researcher, and practicing clinician with over 20 years of hospital and ICU experience. Dr. Malone is board-certified clinical specialist in cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy, and he is currently president of the cardiovascular and pulmonary section of the American Physical Therapy Association. We also have with us Dr. Ellen Rubel-Hakim. Welcome, Ellen. Hello. Thank you for having me. Dr. Rubel-Hakim is the program director of the entry-level DPT program at the University of Delaware. She has extensive clinical expertise in acute and intensive care physical therapist practice. Dr. Rubel Hakim is an active member of the acute care section and is a co-author of the acute care analysis of practice. 
She also recently received the honor of being the 2016 Acute Care Lecturer. So I think I'd like to start off with asking Dan if he could start our discussion this afternoon by sharing with us your thoughts about the safety of providing physical therapy interventions to people who are being cared for in the intensive care unit. Many people, physical therapists included, often feel that the patients that are in the ICU are too ill to participate in rehabilitation activities. That's a great question, and it's actually a question I think we can answer with a lot of great facts. First off, I think when we look at our description of practice in the neurologic intensive care unit, safety is always paramount, of course, whenever we're dealing with people who are a vulnerable population, a critically ill population. And one thing that we found with our retrospective look at patients in the neurologic intensive care unit, that safety is always job one. Untoward events are very rare, and I think that speaks to the, the clinical reasoning, the clinical examination, and the astute observations of the practicing physical therapist. Again, safety is always job one, and I think our analysis looking in the neurologic intensive care unit really aligns well with what was seen pretty much in almost all of the literature that's currently out there, starting with Polly Bailey and her look at feasibility and safety with physical activity in the ICU. In her analysis, I believe the statistic is less than 1% of patients have an untoward event. An untoward event could, you know, we usually think of, you know, having a line come out or accidental extubation, critical drop in blood pressure or a critical drop in oxygen saturation. And the one thing that's really been consistent in our practice analysis as well as all the literature is safety events rarely occur. So I think we can feel really pretty good that physical therapists are outstanding at monitoring patient safety, monitoring vital signs, monitoring patient complaints, and safety is not a big issue. I think Dan's points are extremely valid and should be reassuring. However, it is that high degree of critical analysis and problem solving and skill and in-the-moment thinking that I feel as a profession, self-limits us. We have the evidence to suggest that we can do this, and we can do this well, and we can do this safely. And that raises the question as to why are we so young in the infancy of having momentum be driven behind intensive care unit practice. And I believe a large part of that has to do with this lack of confidence that may exist currently to allow us to really reach our full potential despite the evidence to suggest that we, in fact, have the capabilities of making meaningful and significant impacts to patient outcomes. Ellen, you mentioned a lack of confidence, and I'm wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that. Is, does it have to do with training, education? What are you referring to exactly? I think that raises an excellent question and one that is currently being debated, I think, in the academic community, which is, is intensive care unit practice an entry-level skill or is it advanced practice? And how much of this training comes through in the academic programs? Certainly, intensive care unit objectives are incorporated into the various classes, at least in the programs that I am familiar with. However, to be able to fully manage and direct patient care I believe may involve some advanced practice and advanced mentorship that goes beyond the entry-level setting. I am not convinced that we are fully exposing 
our students to the wide gamut of practice opportunities that the intensive care units have to offer. And a large part of this is through the lack of consistency, so to speak, with respect to clinical education experiences that are currently occurring in different physical therapy programs. We are also finding that there's changes going on so rapidly in many hospital facilities where the mentorship may not exist despite the willingness and the desire by hospital administration to implement early mobilization programs. Dan, that brings up a point that you examined in your study of looking at the survey of clinical practice. There was a section in that where you were surveyed and asked your respondents to comment on their training and where they got it. I wonder if you could expand on that for us. Sure. So one of you're right, uh, Patricia. One of our questions was, how did a physical therapist, a practicing physical therapist in the ICU, how did they gain the skill set, the knowledge, the skills, the attributes to feel confident and competent in the ICU? And we basically broke it down into what we called formal training. So formal training would encompass a residency fellowship as well as continuing education courses. We also had another type of training, which we called informal training, which was more facility-based, so senior mentorship or perhaps a facility-based competency. And then we also allowed the, the option of having no training. And, you know, not surprisingly, the amount of formal training in the ICU was, was really rather limited. And, and when you think about it, the growth of residencies and fellowship is certainly evolving. I think of the critical care fellowships and the cardiovascular and pulmonary physical therapy residencies. Although there are multiple residencies and fellowships now, five, ten years ago, they didn't exist. So I think the residency and fellowship numbers are going to continue to grow, and I think we'll see more and more therapists accessing these avenues of gaining clinical expertise and clinical competence. The vast majority of the training was informal, so that really relied on senior mentorship or competencies that were, you know, really facility-based. And I'm not saying that that's an inadequate way, but I think this kind of speaks to some of the things Ellen brought up in that there's such variance as to what is clinical competency. Right now, there isn't a standard set of action items that a physical therapist has to go through to be considered clinically competent. It's not surprising that the informal mode of competency was number one. And then also kind of surprising was, you know, upwards of 12 to 14 percent of physical therapists who currently practice in the ICU relate that they received no formal training. So this was absolutely learning on the job and learning on the fly. Let's take that a step further then since we've identified this as being a potential barrier for providing physical therapists led rehabilitation in the ICU. What can we do about educating our therapists to be prepared to work with this patient population? I think that there is a greater push towards looking at critical illness and looking at the medically complex within academic programs at large. I think there's greater guidelines being developed and shared with academic programs that are starting to indicate minimal competencies that students need to possess at the time of graduation for different patient populations and also for different settings. I think that a cadre of faculty also need to be 
groomed and developed who can come into the academic classroom and to really teach this content area in a meaningful way and in, to some degree inspire students to enter this. There has to be that desire for people to even want to work in the intensive care unit for us to move this forward. I think with the growing literature and the evidence that's there, students are also starting to appreciate that this might be a viable area to practice and where greater research needs to occur and greater evidence needs to occur. Um, that these individuals may be critically ill, but yet they can be mobilized. And there's at least here some talk that we have with our students about and who should be mobilizing and is this skilled physical therapy and what is out of bed and who should be doing this and what are just the benefits and where's the skilled service and where is this that's just a great activity that is going to improve outcomes in individuals. So overall, I think that there's quite a bit that can be done to help lay the foundation. I think we are also, as Dan was saying, seeing this rise in the fellowship programs. We now have our first acute care residency that has been approved. And as these things start to become more common, we're opening up training venues for practicing clinicians and also trying to lay this out as a career destination for students. Thank you, Ellen. Dan, what are your thoughts on the topic? I would just like to applaud everything that Ellen just said because I firmly agree with it. Really, one of the things we brought out in our national survey in the discussion section was it really needs to be kind of a multiple modal approach where, you know, certainly the academic setting can take a leadership role with providing a foundation to expose students to the critical care setting. Obviously, that could take the form of didactic lectures, but also are there laboratory or practical or simulation experiences that could help facilitate some of that knowledge acquisition. But then also, I think the clinical education side of things needs to be more explicit with perhaps specific objectives and exposures of the student to the ICU. And I really think it, it needs to be more than, you know, just going to the ICU for an afternoon or hanging out with the senior therapist for a day. It really needs to be a prolonged exposure for weeks, if not the entire length of the clinical experience, because uh, it's really unfair to take a newer grad or, or, you know, an experienced therapist who's never set foot in the ICU and then all of a sudden say, oh, this is your caseload. It's, that's just not really a fair way of providing a work experience to the therapist. But I also think, too, part of the multimodal approach would be we really have to look at what are the competencies and the mentorship provided to the therapist in the ICU at the facility level. There's no doubt that certain ICUs are going to have a, a higher acuity or more technology, you know, than others, but I really do think a formal minimum competency would be really a worthwhile endeavor that different facilities could then use that as a model to guide their mentorship and guide their orientation process to the ICU. So there's definitely an awful lot that is evolving, and I think that that's really exciting because we have things, as you say, in this multimodal approach towards really helping this area of practice grow. There seem to be an awful lot of things on the forefront, you know, the fellowship programs that will provide more 
clinicians that are prepared to work in this environment that will help to meet the demand, that will hopefully mentor our students after the academic programs have been able to incorporate more and more exposure to this practice area. So I think between the two of you that there seems to be a sense of a real growth in terms of how we're going to um, move forward. I also thought that this is such a rich environment for these interprofessional opportunities as well. This is a wonderful opportunity for physical therapists to partner with the intensivists, to partner with other respiratory therapists and physicians and nurses to really do some deeply meaningful research to show how an interprofessional multidisciplinary team cooperates and works in collaboration to improve these patient outcomes. And I think that we would be remiss in thinking that this is a PT-only endeavor, whereas trying to instill in students and in clinicians their role within the team. And mm -hmm. I think through that collaboration and the communication and just, you know, that whole culture of mobility, we're going to start to see some significant outcome changes and practice changes. I think one of the concepts that Ellen was alluding to was mobilization is everybody's job and not just physical therapy. And I think that's when we can start uh, thinking of, uh, you know, physical therapy, one aspect of physical therapy, one aspect of rehabilitation in the ICU is mobilization. So certainly mobilization is everybody's job, but I also think that we as physical therapists, as part of our involvement with other professionals, is we have to do a better job of educating other professionals that we bring a lot more to the table than simply we know how to get someone up into standing easier. So the concept that rehabilitation is more than just simply getting someone up out of bed or just getting someone up on their feet and walking. Absolutely. And, Dan, I wonder if you could take a minute at this point and just really clarify those differences between the rehabilitation that a physical therapist and, of course, with an entire team can lead as compared to just getting a patient up out of bed and walking? So when I think of rehabilitation in the ICU, a strictest example would be, you know, a physical therapist who is transferring a patient out of bed. So when the physical therapist gets that patient to the bedside, they're looking at their vital sign response. They're looking at their heart rate, their blood pressure. They're looking at their respiratory rate. They're looking at their pulse oximetry values. They're looking at how the patient is synchronized with the ventilator. They're looking at writing. They're looking at balance. They're looking at trunk stabilization and sitting. And then they stand someone up. And they're looking at functional strength. They're looking at balance. They're looking at motor planning. And the end result, of course, would be maybe taking a step or two and getting out of bed and sitting in the bedside chair, which is a very different skill set than simply getting someone from bed to chair, whether you use an overhead lift or just brute force. So I think that the physical therapist brings so much more from the physical exam, the clinical reasoning side of things, which can then lead to the creation of a plan of care. This patient required, you know, multiple persons assist just to stand up, and the ICU team might be really advocating this patient should be up and walking, well, the physical therapist knows that's not the safest thing to do at that point in time. Getting someone up out of bed and walking where you leave the bedside, where you leave the room, may not be the expert decision at that very moment in time. 
so with respect to all the different aspects of rehabilitation, that it's not just, I think early mobility has led a lot of people to think that it's really just the physical therapist with their team, you know, of nursing or respiratory therapy, getting the patient out of bed and walking, as opposed to looking at all the other systems that you just, you know, spoke about being assessed to see if the patient ready to proceed to the next highest functional, you know, activity. And I'm wondering if you could bring that back to your article about the neurologic intensive care unit, where when the patients that were in the NICU, as compared to the patients that were back on the ward after being in the NICU, there were differences in, in the types of rehabilitation activities they engaged in. And I wonder if you could share that with us. When a patient was in the neurologic intensive care unit, if we think of bed level exercises, range of motion exercises, and then we think of a continuum of upright, so you know, sitting at the side of the bed to transfers into standing to transfers into walking. So we correlated that that was related to the intensity of the physical therapist intervention chosen. So going from bed level exercise to walking was a progression of intensity. So in the neurologic intensive care unit, there's no doubt that physical therapists were much more likely to perform range of motion exercises, bed level exercises, perhaps dangling as the most aggressive out of bed uh, or out of supine activity that was presented uh, or that was performed with the patient. And then as the patient progressed to the ward, there was a significant increase in the amount of transfer out of bed, standing, being more upright, and actual gait training that would occur. Did you have a sense that the patients that were in the NICU, that it would have been safe for them to do more upright activities to advance them a little bit farther along functionally? One of the things that we couldn't really assess was patient acuity. I have no doubt that, you know, if you, if you think of two patients, one patient who requires mechanical ventilation or requires intracranial pressure monitoring compared to another patient who doesn't require that type of physiologic support or physiologic monitoring, physical therapists are definitely grading what intervention they choose. And I think they're making the assumption, if you will, of the patient is more critically ill because they're on a ventilator as opposed to not being on the ventilator, and they're not performing those higher-level out-of-bed activities. And actually, that you know really aligns itself with what's been observed internationally. When you look at some of the information, point prevalence observational data that came out of Germany and other data that came out of Australia and New Zealand, um, there's no doubt that, you know, patients who require mechanical ventilation um, are much more likely not to be mobilized out of bed or to engage in higher intensity rehabilitation interventions. So from your perspective, is there still some sort of barrier for the translation of knowledge that I mentioned earlier that we've seen these, you know, wonderful studies that have shown that patients that meet all the criteria for engaging in rehab activities are able to get up and moving. Um, but then, so that's a research study where there's definitely, you know, a goal for mobility and, and to study that. But then when we look at your manuscripts and your investigations where you're looking at actually what's happening in practice, do you have a sense that this translation is slow? <laughs> to move that information that we know from research studies to actually see the uptake into, like, just everyday clinical practice? 
I guess instead of using the word slow, I think I would probably characterize it as an evolution. And if you think back to 10, 15 years ago where physical therapists weren't really involved in rehabilitative care in the ICU, I think we are seeing a slow transition of practice, a slow evolution of practice. And I, I have no doubt there are barriers. Now, I know we, our research, we didn't identify all the barriers, but, you know, upwards of 30% of physical therapists don't feel that they are adequately trained at times to work in the ICU. In our survey, when we asked therapists to rate their level of confidence with different physiologic monitors and uh, different pieces of equipment, um, the only one that really stood out was mechanical ventilation. And physical therapists, I think, definitely feel a little inhibited at times working with patients who require mechanical ventilation. And I think then that speaks to maybe the education process. We need to maybe look at some of that ICU-level equipment and certainly look at why a patient requires mechanical ventilation and and demystify the mechanical ventilator a little bit. And and from an interprofessional standpoint, we need to co-treat and we need better alignment with our respiratory therapy colleagues who their expertise is in that mechanical ventilation. Absolutely. You know, working with respiratory therapists in the ICU is so essential just because we can really complement each other's practice and really, you know, provide the best care possible for our patients. Another barrier to engaging with a patient in terms of rehab activities has been the amount of sedation that patients in the ICU are often receiving. And there's certainly been movement in recent years to reduce the amount of sedation and certainly to decrease it overall, but also then have periods during the day where the patients are, you know, not sedated so that they can participate in some activities, including rehabilitation and exercise being a big part of that. And I'm wondering what your experience has been in um, your studies and Ellen in your clinical experience about the use of sedation and trying to, you know, again, get that teamwork going so that the physical therapist can be available when the patients are ready for activity. Certainly at the bedside, sedation or the level of alertness of a patient can certainly be a barrier. In our survey of practice, about 30% of community hospital-based physical therapists stated that sedation practices and lack of wakefulness, alertness was a barrier to providing care. It was less of a barrier in the academic setting. Can't really explain that outside of, you know, a lot of critical care guidelines now when we think of the uh, ABCDE bundles really try to promote sedation holidays, sedation interruption, if not, you know, limiting sedation. So I do think it still is a barrier at times. There's no doubt about that. But certainly if we think of the evolution of the translation of rehabilitation in the ICU and how that's a slower-moving process, there's no doubt that sedation practices is also an evolving process. And, I, you know, I think of our critical care physicians and our critical care nurses and, you know, that evolution of what is current sedation interruption and sedation holiday, that has to evolve as well. So hopefully these two different aspects of practice will continue to evolve in parallel together. I absolutely agree. And in some ways, this is very much following a physical therapy philosophy where we start to talk about work and rest, 
and as individuals need to recover, you decrease the amount of rest and you increase the amount of work. And I think that same philosophy is starting to hold true when we start to think about sedation. And you know, clearly individuals were sedated for comfort reasons and for rest and to allow for um, sufficient healing and stabilization of their physiologic systems. But now I think we're finding with all of the delirium and secondary complications and lack of ability to participate in the necessary services that individuals may be able to work a little bit more. And through that work, we are seeing improved outcomes and all of the wonderful things that we traditionally see as we start to dose exercise and dose activity under other situations and circumstances. I don't find this very different in that philosophy. So there's evidence that shows that individuals that do not participate in any rehab activities in the hospital have poor functional outcomes when they're discharged compared to people that do have rehab while they're in the ICU. And these individuals, once they're in the community, even if they get physical therapy services, they don't seem to be able to recover their function the way someone who would be in the same state of weakness or functional impairments and limitations would. So there's something about this post-intensive care syndrome that it's been called that seems to be resistant to rehab interventions once they're discharged, which really stresses the importance of patients in the ICU receiving rehab when they're able. And I'm wondering, Dan and Ellen, if you could comment on that factor as well. Well, one of the concepts that in the ICU rehabilitation community is really starting to talk about much more frequently is, you know, who's the right patient at the right time, what's the right intervention to provide, and what's the, you know, the right dosage, the right frequency and uh, intensity and duration of, of the interventions chosen. And, you know, right now we haven't even really defined who the right patient is, you know, and so this is an area that's really ripe for new research to really, to really investigate. And I think, you know, there's no doubt when I believe it was Margaret Herridge and her group looked at one year, three year, five year, and longer than that outcomes of survivors of ARDS where they saw suboptimal six minute walk tests and they saw patients were complaining of weakness and fatigue and there was a lack of return to work with some of these survivors that it's more than just the ICU. One of the things I jokingly say, you know, someone has ICU acquired weakness. Well, when they're transferred to the floor, if they're discharged from the hospital, where does the, the weakness go? Does it stay in the ICU? Or obviously it follows them and that's the, you know, the new terminology of post-intensive care syndrome. So, I think what we're really looking at is a continuum of rehabilitation need. It's not just what's provided in the ICU, and then we've seen when you have an ICU culture that really promotes mobility and rehabilitation, we've seen a fall off when that patient hits the ward, and then the patient may go to a post-ICU setting, a post-acute care setting, or home, and that culture of mobility and that culture of continuous rehabilitation really has to be maintained throughout the hospital and the post-hospitalization. And I think that's a new area that we really need to address because if we optimally could see everyone in the ICU every day with rather intensive rehabilitation, I still think we're going to see a need downstream 
when they get home. They're, people are going home really in, in a debilitated states. So I, I really do think we need to also consider the post-acute setting and home care and outpatient care. This is all part of early rehabilitation and then for uh, ICU-acquired weakness, but then the continued rehabilitation for post-intensive care syndrome. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Ellen, what are your thoughts on the topic? I would like to add that we don't know, or I don't think we know very well at this point in time, all of the same questions that we're asking in the intensive care unit, how they apply to other settings. So what is the appropriate dosage? What is the appropriate frequency of follow-up in these other settings? That we are setting through research standards that we're not just accepting based upon insurance reimbursement standards. So as Dan was saying, as individuals progress and they are going home or into outpatient centers or needing to go back into the community and be involved in other sorts of wellness or activity-based programs, how should that be done under whose supervision and direction and how are they, as they are progressing through, not further debilitating but habilitating as they are in those post-acute days, weeks, and months that lie ahead? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely survival of a critical illness does present a continuum of care as the patient moves from the intensive care unit back into the community setting. I think at this point I would like to ask each of you for just your thoughts about what's next, what's needed. We've touched on a lot of things in this podcast, but I'm wondering if you could just um, maybe highlight what you think is needed and what's next and where we're going in terms of caring for these patients in the ICU. We need to make sure that the clinicians that we are putting into the intensive care units feel armed and equipped to do the care delivery that is required of them. I think they need to develop the critical thinking skills. I think they need to develop the education. I think they need to develop the confidence. I think they need to develop the sense of team support and collaboration that is going to allow them to be successful. And these are skills that I think are already possessed by many physical therapists. I just feel that potentially the environment, the structure, the resources are not always well aligned and well available to allow these physical therapists to participate in those really truly effective and meaningful ways and to take these mobilization programs more than just we are getting out of bed but into the whole thought process of this is what I am observing physiologically, this is how we're going to dose that activity, this is how we're going to progress that activity or monitor. And I think we back this all up and we say where does this start? This starts in the classroom, this starts with the academic programs, this goes into clinical education and having highly qualified clinical instructors to mentor and to inspire students. It goes into the advanced training opportunities through the residencies and the fellowships where we can learn from expert clinicians and do expert collaborations and start to be exposed to some of the research methodologies so we can progress our knowledge. And I also think we need then to be looking broadly and to understand that as we are doing a better job with mobilization, as we are doing a better job with the medicine and the science of keeping patients alive and moving them from that critical illness into a chronic disease process potentially, that we need to be thinking how is this person going to best thrive in those post-ICU days, weeks, and months that lie ahead and to be developing some more consistent standards and expectations of success 
for our patients. I couldn't agree more with you. Dan, what are your thoughts? So I think Ellen really eloquently, really eloquently put forth a lot of the, the needs and the concepts that from a that we as a physical therapy profession really need to continue to build upon. And then I would just kind of repeat what I said where if we think about from a patient perspective, you know, who is the right patient? What is the right time? What is the right intervention? And what is the right dosage? Right now, the general thought is everybody in the ICU requires daily rehabilitation. And I think we can all honestly say that may not actually be true. There are certainly a group of patients that are going to absolutely do really well with daily care, and they're going to get better and hopefully have a really good outcome. But we also know there are other folks that aren't going to recover nearly as quickly. And I kind of think of, you know, a patient who's deconditioned would really benefit greatly from daily care, daily mobilization, daily rehabilitation, whereas the person who maybe has more of a degenerative process, a, a, the, you know, the polyneuromyopathy, the diagnosis of ICU-acquired weakness related to the breakdown of muscle and the breakdown of nerve, they're probably going to require more of an extended period of rehabilitation. And one of the things I, I think about with this is, you know, physical therapists are a judicious resource, and how do we use that judicious resource, and how do we apply that judicious resource? Because I, I don't think every ICU in, in the country and every hospital, whether it's community or academic, is going to have enough physical therapists to see all their patients all the time. So again, I really think we need to define a population that's going to benefit most from the resource of physical therapy in the ICU, and maybe some other folks would benefit better when they're on the ward, and other folks would benefit when they leave the hospital. Again, I'm not saying that someone doesn't get therapy in the hospital or in the ICU, but we have to think of how to apply this resource of, of physical therapy services across the continuum and I really see that as a, a really interesting line of potential research to really define the population and then define what interventions work for that population to get the best outcomes, whether it's a, a physical outcome, a mobility outcome, or a neuropsychiatric outcome. We certainly know that, you know, from your work and others, that the provision of physical therapy services in the ICU is a team approach. It's safe. It's feasible. Physical therapists are certainly a number of them are very well trained and educated to provide the whole spectrum of rehabilitation for our patients that are in the ICU, you know, that are ready and, you know, medically stable enough to participate in our activities all the way through the continuum of care to when they're in the community and could benefit from home care services or outpatient services to continue their care. And certainly you both have brought up a lot of information and ideas and thoughts on how we can continue to evolve physical therapist practice in the ICU and using the literature, you know, that you've shared with us, Dan, through your publications is really helping to um, move us forward and to help with the evolution of this practice area. And certainly for that, I thank you. And Ellen, your expertise and your vision on all the different aspects that you shared with us that we need to be thinking about from the academic setting to the clinical setting um, have really been insightful, and I thank you for that as well. Ten years of evidence solidify the role of the PT in the ICU. 
a new culture of mobility is emerging. Who will benefit most from PT services, at what dosage, and at what point in the continuum of care? Opportunities to answer these and other questions, and to partner with researchers from other disciplines in the ICU, will mark the next 10 years as academia continues to prepare students in the critical thinking, confidence, team support, and collaboration skills required for the ICU. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of APTA. 